Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this week I have a very, very special guest. I have the world's number one true crime author, Christopher Berry D, on my show. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are we? Oh, great. Good to go. Nice to meet you, Stuart. Thank you. Nice to meet you. So let's have a quick discussion. You're quite famous for, well, like I say, number one world's true crime author. And the one I'm reading at the minute, the one most people will have heard of, is the first in the Talking With Serial Killers book, the series, just called Talking With Serial Killers. What is your actual background that allowed you to write that book? Um, Fluke. Fluke. Um, (laughs) Uh, no, really, what it was, I was in the Royal Marines. I was a Greenberry commando. I did a lot of intelligence work, sometimes interrogating terrorists uh, overseas and in Northern Ireland. When I when I left the Corps, um, I suddenly got – I got those true crime series books, murder murder books, you know, the mag, the weekly, weekly magazines, um, about 240 of them. Um, I didn't realise at the time it would take me two years to – to get them all and cost me a fortune. But then I started reading these different case histories like Arthur Shawcross and Ronnie DeFeer, the Amityville Horror. And I thought to myself, oh, I'll write to them and see what happens. And slowly but surely, these people started to write back to me and I gained their confidence. And then what happened was I did the book, Dad Help Me Please, which was the Craig and Bentley case. It's my first book. It based it on Section 5.1 documents, the murder of uh, PC Mars with Christopher Craig and Derek Bentley in Croydon. And a Croydon TV company, run by Fraser Ashford, wanted to interview me. How did I get these documents a secret? So I went on and did a programme, and then about a year later, Fraser called me. He said, you've been writing to these serial killers, haven't you? He said, how would you like to go to America and interview them? Wow. That's what I did. And because I already knew them through correspondence, and then that followed that I wrote the book that you're reading, which was the first one ever, and it has been the best-selling true crime book of all time, even beats Truman Capote, God bless him, in sales. And then that, of course, launched the sequel, which was Talking Serial Killers 2, and then it's gone on and on since then. So my last book which has just come out this month, which is Sleeping with Serial Killers. And that's focusing on the the partners of these murderers, these serial killers. And is it mainly partners that you think were complicit in the crimes or people that weren't aware? No, I'm focusing on, I mean, I'm not talking about like um, Amara Hindley and Brady type uh, or West hookups, like a t- uh, killing team. I'm talking about women that suddenly wake up one morning, the door's being kicked in by the police and their husband's arrested, i.e., you know, like BTK or somebody like that. You know, they're totally totally unaware that they've been sleeping with a monster. Yeah. And that's that's a terrifying thought for for any woman to imagine. And, and the book shows red flags, what to look for in a husband or partner's behaviour. Quite a bit of psychology going on there. But it's... um. It came. The idea came to me in my sleep. I, I woke up thinking about that movie with Sharon Stone, and there's this ice pick under the bed, and I thought, oh, "That." <laughs> and then the book came into my head. 
Did you speak to the actual killers as well to get both sides of the story or just the partners? Well, in this case, you know, the, the killers that I, some of them I have, but it is really focusing on, see, what has been ignored over the years is the fact, yes, we got the victims, the physical victims of these killers. We got that, they're victims. And then we got their parents and their loved ones are victims. And in some respects, the police are victims because they got to clear up the mess. You know, and I've had experience of all of that in my career. Mm-hmm. But people somehow, have, they don't seem to think that the wife, who might have two or three ad- kids that love their dad, lived with this guy for 20 years, 30 years, 15 years, whatever, and yet he's going out at night raping and killing. And I mean, for a family like that, it must be absolutely, in their children, devastating. Yeah. Did you speak to any of the children involved as well? Or was it men of the partners? Some, but, you know, for, for decency's sake, a lot of these people do not want to be, to have their name mentioned. You know, I've, I've had to be very, very careful with this. You know, I've got a great deal of sympathy for the next of kin and their kids and stuff, because I always imagine what would have happened and asked your viewers, how would you feel if you're a woman and you woke up one morning and this has happened? Your life would just collapse. And it's a very sensitive subject. But I've approached it in a way where, look, there are red flags in a relationship that the woman who's got a lot of sense senses something's not quite right. And these red flags are very, very, they're easy to spot once you know what to look for. Is it your hope that by highlighting some of these red flags, you could potentially prevent people falling victim to this in the future? Well, wouldn't that be a wonderful idea? Wouldn't that, I mean, I have cleared up cold cases in the United States, in Connecticut, and a couple of other um, states working with the police and got commendations for it. In my new book, which I'm working on now, is Letters from Serial Killers. There's one guy in there, and this is Harvey the Hammer Carrigan, who I interviewed at MCF Stillwater, half the hammer. And he, he told me exactly how he stalked his victims or what he did, how he did it. And this is one of the most notorious serial killers in United States history. And I quoted him verbatim. And he's actually, he's saying between the lines, parents, don't let your children do this or don't let your children do that. Drum it into them. Now, we just had, on the last day, I think it is, we've had a young girl that seems to have been abducted from Windsor or somewhere. She left a nightclub. Some of my friends know her. One of them is is her niece. She was drunk. She tottered out of a nightclub. And she had to get 10 miles home, and she hasn't been seen since. Now, in my book, Stalkers, I tell you exactly what's going through these offenders' minds because I know what their minds, how their minds work because I've interviewed so many of them. Harvey the Hammer Carignan gives us a very cold, heartless example of how these people work. And this is coming from a killer himself. This is not something I've invented. This is exactly what he said in his own words. And it's terrifying because once the victim is like Bundy, Ted Bundy's the same. Once the victim is in that trap, the killer doesn't start small talk. 
he's not interested in that. He'll do the small talk. Oh, hi, do you want a lift, et cetera, et cetera. Or can you help me carry the books or help me move my boat, which Bundy did. The small talk stops the minute that girl is under his control. And with Harvey, he was such a big man. His first murder was in Alaska many, many years ago when he was a young man of age 20. He was a soldier. He attacked a, a young woman walking across a park in Alaska Anchorage, and he hit her with his fists. And at post-mortem, it looked like a rocket had slammed into a tank. Her face was totally destroyed, smashed to pieces with just a few of his punches. Now, that's exactly what he would have done with these young girls that he picked up in Minnesota. And this is what these people do. It's not chat, 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 or la, la. once that girl's in that car... She's a dead woman sitting there. Do you think they'd be more likely to have a bit of a chit-chat if they knew the person they were going for? So, if, for example, if it was a family member, if it was a spouse, rather than serial killers and stalkers who attack people they don't know, more opportunistic, and it would be less of a chit-chat, more of a get-straight-to-it? Well, apparently, according from what in the intelligence I'm getting from this girl in Windsor, that, that she was seen arguing with a man in, in the nightclub. Now, whether he followed her out or whatever it was, I don't know. Peter Sutcliffe, you know, there's this initial chit-chat, how much are you going to charge me, where should we go? Then once he's got her under his control, it's over and done with. I mean, a couple of occasions, Harvey did talk to these girls in a sort of a compensatory way. In other words, he's sort of identifying with them, you know, and, and if they cried, he'd punch them in the mouth and break their teeth. And then on two occasions, he took them and dropped them off not far from their homes and said he was sorry. And it's almost tried to compensate for what he's doing by saying, well, you know, I had a daughter like you and I missed her and it, it upsets me. You know, the compensatory type of bullshit they come up with. But by and large, normally, like all these other serial killers, once the person's in there, under their control, they're dead. What's your thoughts on the nature versus nurture argument? Yeah, lovely question, isn't that? It's uh, it's actually these days more along the lines of nature and nurture. It's a combo of the two. I'm very big on, um, as my readers will soon learn when they read some of my latest books, your viewers will read, on this nature versus this nature nurture thing. Now, if a child's brought up in a dysfunctional family, like Henry Lee Lucas, who I interviewed down in Huntsville when he was alive on death row there, and a few others, they have a very, very abusive childhood. And the FBI will, has, I think it's a 12 tick box um, at risk for child register. You, you tick the boxes, alcoholism in the family, prostitution, absenteeism from school is a list. The more boxes you tick, the more chances that person's going to go off the rails. It's not to say that he will or she will, but it's a good predictor. So if a child is brought up in a highly dysfunctional family and allowed to run amok at nights with no parental control, spitting and throwing abuse at the police, breaking windows, that child, and, and he's got dysfunctional parents who are lazy, bone idle, on the old scratch all the time, beating his wife about, the child becomes almost inoculated against it. He gets used to it. So as the child grows older, that's his formative years, the most important part of that child's life. So as the child gets older, he doesn't know any better. You know, he can't, he's not programmed mentally to make the right decisions. So when it comes to a problem, he resorts to violence or theft or something else. A child coming from a good, stable home that mirrors his parents' 
that goes regular schooling, good diet, then that child is the chances are that child is going to grow up into a mature adult and work very safely and happily in society and be a success. So the formative years are extremely important. And all of your viewers will know, you go out late at night in a town centre or somewhere and you'll see groups of kids misbehaving and causing problems, upsetting the elderly, being destructive of property. Those children have got no parental control. Therefore, they will grow up to become thugs, no doubt about it, unless it's brought to heel quickly. Unfortunately, the social services these days are not really up to much either. You know, we've seen that with all these baby murders recently. You know, they're too far left. They want to wake fucking ideas up. It is quite a concern, and you're mentioning that, the amount of deaths involving youngsters, toddlers and and babies especially. Do you think part of that's to do with the lockdown? Because I know the the divorce rate and the domestic violence rate has increased massively since COVID was brought in. Do you think that's a connection at all? Well, yeah, but when you look at the sort of demographics, if you like, of those homicides, those child homicides, baby homicides, you'll notice, and I don't want to be disrespectful to people, but they're normally from people that are ill-educated, don't hold down proper jobs, Probably their genes are screwed up anyway, and they're bored. Now, you look at those babies and children are being killed. Now, all of them came from a poor family. Not one of them came from a middle or upper class family. And then that's a simple, simple answer to that. And these people are not well-bred, and I don't care who says otherwise. They've got more tattoos than a fairground worker. They've got very loose morals. And this is what happens. They haven't got the ability to behave properly. And, and with the COVID thing coming up, this increases the tension, which makes them more high risk than they were before. What do you think the solution is then, if this is passed down from generation to generation? Well, you've got to go back to the beginning. I mean, this is, I mean, I, I really rather think this is a crazy thing to say, Stuart. <laughs> But the people that should be reading these books can't read or they they want to watch soaps on television. They don't want to be educated. They wouldn't understand some of the words. They wouldn't know the difference between a noun and an adjective if you stuck it under their nose. <laughs> it's fair laugh at that because I call my friends an aspiring author. Uh, not true crime, but more crime fiction. And he uses a lot of adjectives in the drafts that he sends me. So I call him Mr. Adjective. That's, the, that's what made me chuckle. Let's not mess about with it. You know me and you know what I'm like. And, and what's the point in me trying to chocolate coat it? When we all know, when we look in the newspapers and look at the news every day, the failings of the judicial system, the failings of the police in a lot of cases, the failings of the social services, and at the end of the day, it comes down to parents to learn how to, if they're going to have a child, you know, you, you get more instructions when you get a washing machine to know how to use it than you do if you have a kid. Yeah, I can attest to that, definitely. I wish there was, imagine how rich you'd be if you wrote an instruction manual on parenthood. You'd be set for life. Yeah, well, actually, a lot of people have. And the thing is, they haven't had kids of their own. <laughs> Sounds sod law, isn't it? People that 
haven't experienced it. It's like me writing a book called How to Grow Roses, and I haven't got a clue what a rose is. We can all write a book about how to do this, how to do that. But then you ask the author, oh, well, how many children have you got then? Oh, no, no, I've not had any children. Um, you know, my girlfriend doesn't like the idea. <laughs> <laughs> What's your opinion on, obviously coming from myself hosting a true crime podcast, and it's the in thing at the minute. There's hundreds, thousands of us here. Maybe putting myself in the firing line. What's your on your genuine opinion on people who write these podcasts? Do you think they're in it for the right reasons, or do you think a lot of people are jumping on it because it's a bit of a, a wave that they're riding at the minute? I've got no, I've got no opinions either way on that, Stuart. I mean, each to his own. You know, you do. We all do things for different reasons. All I'm grateful for is I'm. I hope, which comes back to one of your points you made earlier. I hope that by trying to open the door for people to see what these killers and the way they trap or the way they kill or whatever it is, or the warning signs and the red flags, the more I we get that out into the public, the penny will slowly start to drop. So therefore, you guys and girls who do podcasts have value to me and they have value to society. It doesn't matter whether you're making money out of um, hits on YouTube or what, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's the message, it's driving that message slowly home. So if you make a million pounds a day doing what you're doing, but we're getting the message out, that's fine by me. I wish. <laughs> Can you lend us a tenner? <laughs> <laughs> if I had a million, I'd lend you 20. But I don't have a million, unfortunately. I did have a question, though, bringing it back to my uh, my friend. As I say, he's, he's working on his first novel at the moment, and he wanted me to ask you, what your sort of journey was with regards to publishing. So let's say you get the first call to visit and speak to your first serial killer. At what point did you a realize you could do this with more than one and turn it into an actual series? And second, what was it like trying to convert your experience into that of a book being published? Well, that that's a brilliant question. And the question is this, obviously there were 12 or 13 serial killers that I interviewed face to face, some women and some men. That I didn't realise at the time, although it, it was a groundbreaking team documentary series because everybody's doing it and everybody's interviewing these people, but we were the first to do it. And, um, you know, the road trips in America, you're out on the road listening to Johnny Cash, you know, you're visiting the sheriffs, the crime scenes. It's a hoot. It's a great time. But you get a tremendous amount of experience built into that. It's not like just writing backwards and forwards. You actually go to meet them. I mean, it's a great hope to go and do this in real. Go in the penitentiary, sit in an electric chair, get strapped down on the gurney like I did in Texas. That's my phrase I said when I sat down on the electric chair. He said to the warden, there's something wrong with this. And the warden said, what's that for? And he said, it's not switched on. (laughs) (laughs) You get all these stories that build around what you're doing. And then I never thought when I was doing this series, I'd write a book. And I'd already published with Virgin and WH Allen before and you and somebody else. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute, I might write a book about this now. And um, I rang Virgin up and they said, oh, no, Chris, we can't have these killers saying it in their own words. And it'll upset our grey rinse ladies. You know, we can't have that. So I spoke to John Blake and he, he snapped it up straight away. He said, I'll have it. I'll have it. An hour later, Virgin rang me back. Chris, we'll have that book. We've, we've had a change of heart. And I said, no, I just sold it to one Blake. <laughs> and I'd never written a book in my life. 
So I had to learn the hard way. I mean, I have I had written books on the long drop and the Craig and Bentley case and Babes in the Wood and a few books like that, but nothing along the lines of that was just like one each well, John Canan for the murder of Susie Lamplew. You know, I did that one. But I had a good teacher. I had Robin O'Dell, who was my mentor, who's a very famous true crime historian and writer in his own right. And he it's like learning to fly, Stuart. You know, you don't get in a, in a in a Cessna and take off and yeah. think you're going to fly across the Isle of Wight. You're taught to do it, and that's how I learned my, my way. And that's the way I teach now. I've got these master classes coming out, produced by uh, Rock Oyster in um, Plymouth, big company that do um, – and, and it's a, a six-part masterclass series televised. It's going on YouTube, which which takes the reader from the first idea and how to develop it into a book and how to get it published. Oh, that'd be interesting. So I was I was going to ask you actually because a lot of people when they first get into I can only use it because I can relate to it podcasting. A lot of people want to perfect it before they actually put content out there. The analogy I always use I say The Simpsons came out late eighties. The quality was shit. It looked terrible, but the content was there. And as it got older and older, the technology got better. And now it looks a million dollars and the quality is still there. If they'd have waited until the quality was better, they might not have released an episode for 10 years. Do you feel it's better to just put content out there, even if it needs developing, rather than waiting until you think it's polished because you've not released anything in that same period of time? Right. I get where you're coming from. I've matured over time, actually. No, that all right, I can give you an, a definite answer to this. My first book was called The Long Drop Concerned the Murder of PC Gutteridge, 409 Gutteridge in Essex in 1927. Two men were hanged, Brown and Kennedy. My grandfather, Oscar Berry Tompkins, was a solicitor, dedicated man. His client, Kennedy, was hung. One day I was in a secondhand shop in Southampton, junk shop. And on the top shelf, I was just browsing and I found all the Times newspaper cuttings relating to that trial by fluke. I thought, that's my grandfather's name. Jesus. So I then started to think about writing a book. Never written a book before in my life. Not well educated at all. And so I started reading through these cuttings. And we didn't have the internet then as such. And then I rang up. I thought, oh, I'll get hold of these Section 5.1 documents. But you couldn't get them because they're extended closure. And then somehow, I don't know what happened, but I ended up in the Lord Chancellor's office. I was looking for something else. And by mistake, they gave me all these documents on Section 5.1 documents on Brown and Kennedy. And I wrote a book, which I thought was a book. And I sent it off to W.H. Allen, and I didn't get a reply. And then I sent it off again, and I got uh, I got a reply back after about six months. No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't get a reply. Then I was in a local bookshop, and the guy I was telling the the owner, "Oh, well, I've written this book about blah blah blah." I said, "But it's been blank by W. H. Allen." And by fluke again, he said, "I used to work for them as a sales rep. I know Eric Dobby, the managing director. Let me send it in." Sent it in. Three months later, I got a letter through the post from Robin O'Dell, who was their, like, true crime consultant. And it said, Dear Christopher, that's the worst typescript I've ever seen in my life. It is awful. 
But then he said, but the research is impeccable. Would you allow me to work with you? You being the principal author, I will be like Christopher Berry and Robin O'Dell. He said, would you? And I said, yeah. And then he took me through that journey. Now, that book went through three editors because editors get sacked quite a lot. So you, you'll write a book and please one editor. And then all of a sudden, the publisher will say, oh, he's left now. Uh, we've got another editor and he's going to look at it. And then you've got to change it again because each editor's got their own ideas. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I got that book out and that was followed by Dad Help Me Please, Section 51 Documents. And I haven't looked back. Once you got your first book out, is it a case of, right, the first milestone's done, now I'm a qualified author. Is it easier to get the second book out? No, look, when I, when I wrote the first book, I thought, I'm never going to write and go through this hell again. <laughs> God, they can get stuffed. I mean, it is, you, you've got, you can't do it. You can't write for the money. You've got to do it for the because you want to do it. Yeah. You've got to make it fun. But I'll tell you what, I mean, if you look up on the internet, your, your viewers look up on the internet, how many authors have committed suicide? I mean, I'll have a lot of them. They normally shoot themselves. <laughs> what's the frustrating part i've never done it so i'm completely a novice with regards to what's the frustrating thing that would drive someone to that level do you think well it, it, it become possessed um yeah i mean I, I i'd never apart from the time i was in the marines when i used to go to church in the marines because you had to go to church you know uh, and and stuff i'd never been in a church in my bloody life and then I had a divorce over this because I, I became so addicted to what I was doing, locked in my office day and night trying to figure it out, that it cost me a, my, my, a divorce. Um, mm. And so that, and then I, I went into a very dark world. I, I, I lost my friends, wouldn't talk to me. I couldn't talk to them. I, I, I was sort of like self-isolated. And then, um, then one day, a couple, I got them off a parking ticket and they, they were quite religious and they, they said to me, look, you need to come to church, come to Alpha meeting. I said, you can get stuffed, don't go to church. They said, I come. And, and, and after I'd been to church, and I wouldn't say I'm a devout Christian or anything like that, but it changed It changed my life. It gave me some hope. I started more, meeting people, talking to people, you know, started to read the Bibles, well, Bibles occasionally. And now I do use biblical quotes in, in my books. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the horror films you were interested in. Mm -hmm. Maybe you ought to cast your eyes on um, my book, Serial Killers at the Movies. I've seen that. Is that the one with uh, Hannibal on the front, right? With the And the chapter on seven, where he uses the seven deadly sins. Mm -hmm. Good film. Fascinating stuff. And then you've got Amityville Horror that you mentioned earlier, Defeo, um, you know, the house that the Lutz has said that was haunted. That's in the yeah. book. I actually read that chapter last night. I found that interesting because I wasn't aware of the background with regards to the making up that it was haunted, basically just to get eyes on it. And then the whole film series comes out and realistically it was just a guy. <laughs> do you think that he did it then? Because I know you mentioned that he is adamant that he didn't do it, but realistically it would have been... Even the door opened a, a jar just a tiny bit to let, let the devil in into your bedroom. But, but the thing with Ronnie was, I mean, I interviewed him. He, he was the sickest idiot you could ever. I mean, he was like Henry Lucas. Neither of them got a clue where they are even or what planet they're on. And Ronnie was, I mean, he did it all right. He, I mean, I handled all the exhibits. 
I spoke, I'm interviewing Rick Asuno, who wrote the best book on it, The Night the Defeo Died. I, I met all the cops, the judges, crime scenes. I did a whole lot. Been in the house. And, um, yeah, he did it. Of course he did. But he tried to blame his, his older sister, Alison. Um, but when you see the crime scene photographs of Alison, you can, you can find all these pictures on the internet. They grew from, but, um, but she was shot dead in her bed, you know. Yeah. What's it like when, so you, you, how long before generally writing back and forth with these guys before they say you can come and meet them? Well, let's put it this way. With Arthur Shawcross and Michael Sams, Michael Sams, the English killer that um, killed, uh, kidnapped uh, Julie Dart, the, the working girl, and then kidnapped Stephanie Slater. I mean, it, it, I was writing to them for about two years, not getting an answer. I just plodded away. And then all of a sudden I get a letter from Arthur Shawcross, just a short note, yes, I will see you. I thought, oh, fuck you. But then he started. Once they start writing, and you'd start writing, you get you've got the door open. Then I get hundreds of letters from these people. And with Michael Sams, Michael Sams wrote back after about a year and a half, and he said, "What do you want? I'm too busy these days. I like watching football on television." <laughs> but I got into interview him in HMP for Sutton. Yeah. So you know the one-legged kidnapper. So sometimes, but other killers. See, this is like about fishing. It's like when you go fishing, you know where to cast your bait. And with some killers like Jar Robinson, the bodies in the barrel bloke in Kansas, you know, it's like dangling a bait in front of them. And if they don't bite, you think, have I got my bait wrong? And then with, with Robinson, I suddenly, I, I send him a couple of book covers and I said, look, I think I could make a movie about you and a best-selling book. And there'd be big money in it. It's all bullshit, but and he, yeah. he 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 bit my hand off, and then of course I get all these letters from him, which are going in one of they're all in one of my books. It's it's just mind blowing. This man's thinking processes. Yeah, here's a two part question: When you agree to see them, I suppose first of all, are they allowed to read the books that you publish about them? And second of all, if they are, <laughs> have you ever have you had any bad feedback from the killers? about what you've written? Generally, they're not allowed to read my books. They should have read them before they go to commit the crimes, and then they will learn not to make the silly mistakes they made. That's the first lesson. But Keith Hunter Jesperson, the happy face killer, and he writes, if any of your viewers want to write to him, you find him at Oregon Department of Corrections, Keith Hunter Jesperson, six foot seven, giant of a man, interstate, trucker who killed women he will write volumes and volumes of letters and send photographs and pictures of the girls that have fallen in love with him and one of them was had a lipstick mark on it he showed me and, and i said i, I said who, who gave you that lipstick mark he said no it's not lipstick chris that's menstrual blood she's put on there jesus but here's the thing i sent him my book talking with serial killers and he was allowed to read it Right. And I've got it here. I've got it here. And 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 he annotates in pages. You Christopher, you didn't spell that place right. I wish you'd put your dots and the commas. I'm fed up trying to tell you how to write a book. Yeah, seriously. Grammatical advice from a serial killer. So I've got this book with a serial killer who's an expert in such matters telling me where I'm going wrong. It's unique. That is, that is unique. I'll give you that. <laughs> Were you ever nervous speaking to anyone? No. Not one of them. Nope. 
think that's because of your your sort of marine background? No, because I come from Portsmouth. Right, say no more. <laughs> I'm in control. Um, I've, before I've gone in, I mean, I don't. You you, you probably know about a little bit about a mind control and MK Ultra and all these sort of things. Well, I was an interrogator, so I know how to get inside somebody's head. It's knowing what turns them on, what they want, what doesn't turn them on, lure them into your confidences. You're in control. And you've got the one thing your viewers must always remember. These people are cowards. Did Bundy ever attack a man? No. He'd be worried he'd get his teeth knocked down his throat. Mm. You know, all these serial killers, even the big ones, very, very rarely go on a killing spree for men, unless it's in the gay community, then it's different. But most serial killers are cowards. So if you were to front up somebody like Keith Hunter Jesperson in a pub, he would back down. But he'd quite happily pick some young girl up and beat her to death by the side of the road. Yeah. So when I'm in front of them, it doesn't matter whether I was in the Marines or I came from Mars. It doesn't matter. (laughs) I know that I know enough about them and they know that. And they know that I control them and if they think they're going in a book or a tv documentary which i've done then they they play my game i don't play their game okay dougie clark the sunset slower interviewed him on death row at san quentin on sq he came out shackled up raving and ranting we did a tv program about him swearing the language was disgusting took me 20 minutes to calm him down but eventually you'll get them where you want them yeah, I was going to ask if they're actually restrained when they speak to you and if it's just you two in the room. There have been occasions where, I mean, Dougie Clark was restrained, heavily shackled because he was kicking up a fuss before we even got there. I mean, you know, he, he, you know he's got no teeth. He's, I mean, he used to be a handsome man. He's got a great sense of humour, though. I like him. He's quite a funny guy. We get on very well now. But most killers, I prefer them unshackled and I prefer sometimes alone in a room with them, like Bianchi or... You know, somebody like that, I'm quite happy to sit down with them on their own and, and chat. They're not going to – I did it with um, half the hammer. Big guy, he could have ripped my head off. But he came in, he was quite softly spoken. He eyeballed me for about three minutes. He was trying to suss me out. But I'd been writing to him for a couple of years, so, yeah, you know. And Bianchi was like – you could feel the evils. You could smell the evil coming off of him. And, uh, and he was eyeballing me across this little table. I was locked in a room with him, no no shackles or anything. And he eyeballed me like he, his eyes don't blink. He's a horrible man. And I got up, walked around the table, put my arms around him, whispered in his ear. I said, come on, give your Chris a big hug. <laughs> I've come away from England to see you, you motherfucker. And his brain stopped working. It just stopped ticking. He just couldn't figure out what happened. And then we had this hour-long interview and then when the guards came to get him, just as he was being escorted out the door, he turned around, he snarled at him, he said, next time I'll, I'll, I'll rip your head off, I'll kill you. <laughs> he only did that because he had the guards with him. He wanted to sort of make it the big. Yeah. So after that, I saw him on his, I went into his cell and I wound him up outside his cell, his little house. Then I saw him again on the exercise yard in the snow and he didn't look at me. And then everywhere I went to make a program about him, every crime scene, I sent him a postcard. <laughs> Dear Kenny, wish you were here. We just had some clam chowder and loads of cold beer. How's your day? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What sort of protocol do you have to go through safety-wise? Do you have to sign like a, a waiver form or do they give you a big 
grilling before you go in and see them? No, American Killers is again my my series or masterclass will explain that. But generally, in this country, it's almost impossible when you're a relation to get in to see a Cateria prisoner. I did it with Sam's and, and John Canan by by using a bit of garn and cunning. But in America, every inmate in America is entitled by law under the, under the U.S. Constitution to see the press or anybody they want. Hmm, didn't know that. There's no grilling from you, but when you get there. They will send you the equivalent of a VO, a visiting order. And when you get there, they will just get you to sign a waiver, a disclaimer saying, look, if you get if you get killed, don't sue us. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's fair enough. What's the have you ever done like multiple interviews in one trip? If you had two people at the same prison? Yeah, well, yeah, um, uh, in the same prison, yeah. I mean, we did, we did, you know, quite, we we had two trips to the states to do the twelve part series, but in the same prison, but not at the same time. I did Ellis Unit with us with um, Kenneth Allen Duff, who's now executed, and we also did Henry Lucas in the same prison. They were both on death row at the time. Macduff mm. was executed by lethal injection. Uh, Henry Lucas had his, his death sentence commuted and he died of natural causes in prison. What's your thoughts on the death sentence? Well, and that's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, every state, every... I'm not going to tell the people of Texas. It's none of my bloody business. If they want to execute people for killing little kids and torturing them and cutting women open and eating their bloody insides and stuff like that. Let them get on with it. I mean, you've got to remember these people know when they're breaking the law, they know that the ultimate penalty could be the death sentence. They make the decision. Judge once told me in New York and Long Island, Christopher, he said, society makes the rules. If these if you park on a double-year line, whose fault is if you get a ticket? You go and cut somebody's head off and steal their jewellery and rape their mother, and you know that you're going to get executed for it, then you made that decision. We just supply the rope. You know, that's it. I mean, it's a personal choice, isn't it? In that same vein, then, what would be the difficulties with regards to speaking to people who say we're done for manslaughter with diminished responsibility and they're in a secure hospital rather than a prison? Would that be more difficult to gain access to speak to people under that circumstance? Well, yeah, it's extremely difficult. I mean, I did, I interviewed Peter Sutcliffe and I interviewed Ronnie Cray when they, and, and also Paul Beecham when they were in Broadmoor. What I will get my colleague um, Boris to contact you, if I may, he's just finishing off a book called Broadmoor Sinister. And that has got, that is a dynamite book. He's exposing everything about the killers that are in there, the histories, the, the former treatments, the Jimmy Savile affair, um, and everything. It's going to be a blockbuster of a book. Um, he's doing it as a, an ebook or something, I think. It's a book. Um, but if you like, I'll get him to put, put you in touch with him and you can talk to him about that. Oh, definitely. It sounds interesting to me. What um, do you have? Because I know I'm, I'm about to get to the chapter on your book with Eileen Wernos. Do you find the crimes committed by female serial killers, are they more to do with? sounds corny, but are they more to do with love than random acts of violence? Is there normally an emotional connection with female serial killers? Well, it depends how you're defining this. I think if you're going for, like you say, um, murder in the secondary or manslaughter, you know, the murder is committed in the 
the heat of the moment, mm. then, you know, the sentence has to be appropriate. But a lot of women, especially American women, kill for insurance purposes. Okay. Some, something, you know, their, their hubby or their, their hubby's got a, a, a double indemnity life policy. Patricia Wright was one I interviewed. She she did her husband. I mean, um, a lot of women, you know, uh, black widows will kill several husbands. In fact, one woman, after she buried her first husband, who she poisoned with antifreeze, antifreeze lays drink, as she was as she was coming out of the service with all the flowers and the sandwiches, her friend said, what are we going to do with all these extra sandwiches? Nobody's eating them. She said, oh, I'll save them for the next funeral. <laughs> I think I remember that. I think I've covered that case. What was the lady's name? Remind me. Off the top of my head, I can't. I've got so many names, but was, um, uh, I can't think. Uh, then, you, you, then you'll get women that are part of a tag team with a man. Uh, occasionally, two women will do it, but then one-off kills. But then you'll get somebody like Aileen Wernos, God bless her. Then she's quite unusual. Oh, and you got Joanne Denny in this country. Um, I did that book, Love of Blood. Yeah, killed. You know that she's a homicidal maniac, but. Yeah, Aileen Wernos, a very sad business. Yeah, I was just looking here at my old episodes. Was it Mary Wilson, the Merry Widow of Windinook, the one with the sandwiches? That's what that name rings a bell. Yeah, it's got a fairy tale name, hasn't it? <laughs> Windy. <laughs> yeah, the Merry. Yeah, she was the one. Like you say, she killed. I think she killed four husbands altogether, three or four husbands. And it was a bit of a running joke about the funeral and the sandwiches, like you say. I did do one on Dennehy as well. She was, uh, did she threaten to kill Rose West or something? Got her moved prisons because she said she'd kill her. Yeah, well, Joe's now at HMP Bronzefield. And um, the first night she moved in there, she wanted to be the new shot caller on the block. Like, you know, she was going to be the boss. So she got hold of Rose West said, I'm going to fucking kill you tomorrow. So Rose scuttled off to see the screws, who put her on Rule 43, they shipped her out. <laughs> I mean, that's a hell of a way to make a name for yourself in a new prison, isn't it, I suppose? She's the devil incarnate. I mean, she's... I mean, she only used a five-inch pocket knife. She didn't use that big dagger that you see in the photographs. Yeah. She didn't kill them with that. I mean, she's a little pocket knife. You know, some guys, 40 times stabbed them in broad daylight. What's going on? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Why do you think women actually write to killers? You know, you mentioned earlier that people write to them and they send them the thing in menstrual blood and stuff. Why do you think they do that? Because they're not right in the head. I think that's a fair enough answer, to be fair. No, no, no. One of my killers, and it, I mean, I'm not plugging this book, but when you read this book about letters from serial killers, I mean, it's a hoot. I mean, you've got, you've got a guy called Philip Jablonski. Polish guy in America and he's eating parts of women and he's doing the most despicable. And I've got all his letters. He's telling me how he does it all. He's, he's, he died of natural causes on death row in, um, in prison not so long ago. But Philip Jablonski, look him up. Philip Jablonski, right? A unattractive monster. I mean, a beast of truly monstrous proportions. And he had girls writing to him. One of the women was an elderly lady from near Brighton. She was about 75 or 70, and she was using all her money to send him love letters, and they wrote love letters to each other. And when I interviewed her, she said to me, he was the most beautiful man, Christopher, I've ever seen in my life. 
another woman who lived in America travel, used to travel 700 miles a week or every fortnight to go and visit him. And she was upset because she said, you treated Philip so badly in this article I wrote. She said, you, you've treated him like so badly. He's such a sweet, caring young man. And then she paused. It's like she paused. And he, t- he got a lot of money off of her. And then she's like, paused. And then she said, he likes fat women, do you? <laughs> oh, you can't make it up, can you? You can't. This is a good, the strange thing about true crime is that it's almost ridiculous to be on belief. You know, there's fiction that's far, far less creative than the truth. It's ridiculous. One of the things that fascinates me about the killers in the book I'm reading is the amount of killers that masturbate over a dead body and they return to the scene of the crime and do it repeatedly. Michael Ross did that. I just, I I mean, doing it over that is ridiculous anyway. Ross and a lot of killers, they go, they return to the crime scenes to masturbate and gloat and think, and then they take those mental trophies with them for the rest of their life. So when they go into prison, like Kenneth Bianchi and a number of others, uh, Harvey the Hammer um, and Ross, Ross used to masturbate up to 30, 40 times a day in prison to have sores on his penis. He couldn't stop. And and so they keep, you know, you, 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 your viewers will know that what they call trophies, taking away a trophy from a crime scene. It could be a lock of hair, it could be a bit of jewellery, it could be some underwear. They take them away as trophies to remember what they've done, gloat over them. But trophies can also be mental memories. They become a subconscious or conscious uh, memory, which they take away and they open it up again, relive it again and again and again because they're out of control. It's same with Colin Pitchfork. He masturbates constantly in prison. They knew about it, fantasizing about killing those two young girls. And he comes out and he starts stalking girls again. It's ridiculous. It's the true nature of the beast. Why do you think then some of these killers, because I know a lot of them have actually confessed crimes to you that the police couldn't quite pin together without that confession. Why do you think they do that? Do you think it's to get more notoriety or they just like telling people what they've done? Well, uh, again, a lot. I mean, this, this is where the British bit comes in. I love this true blue bit. Like, you're going all the way to America, and this guy's in a prison, and he's just a number now. He's just a nothing, right? He's locked up for the rest of his life, or he's going to get executed. He's got he's nothing. And the, the, he's playing games with the police. They want to know about two or three murders, and he's keeping his mouth shut. All of a sudden, somebody's going to fly all the way from England to see him, to write a book about him, make a TV, even a movie about him, which is all bollocks. And, of course, he suddenly feels important. And because you've now got him again under your control to a certain degree, in other words, you're offering him something which is he can then go around the prison and boast, I've got I've got a famous, I've got the BBC or something like that coming to see me, you know, blah, blah, blah. It, it makes him feel important. Mm. You're stroking his feathers. We all love that, but he's stroking his feathers, or she is. You control them then, and then it comes to a point, well, with Michael Ross, I had all the information about two kills that he hadn't confessed to. Connecticut State Police contacted me in a motel and said, look, Chris, could you try to wheedle this out of him somehow, use a bit of tricks, you know, but but the cops don't say that we told you to do this. 
And then I'd get them. I got it with Shawcross with Little Jack Blake. I got it with Michael Ross with two kills. Yeah, and I got got Shawcross again on um, the murder of Kimberly Logan. I cleared up those. So, yeah, it's just a case of... But that's when it gets serious because you, there's next to kin out there and they, they want answers. And at the end of the day, maybe you're the only person that can get it. Yeah. Which serial... This is a question from one of my friends. Which serial killer crimes that they committed when they're explaining it to you did you find the hardest to listen to and how did you deal with it you got friends i've got one at least i haven't (laughs) (laughs) the only friends i've got send me christmas cards at christmas are serial killers um none of them really none when i'm dealing with these people i've got ice going through my veins Mm. if they try to shock me which they do I mean, they can say the most terrible things and you can see it in their faces, they're gloating or giggling like Ross did, you know, described strangling and the bruise marks and he got a kick out of it and stuff. The thing is just to look at them as if, well, and what what next, you know, so what? And that throws them because they're, they're looking at you hoping to get a reaction because they're control freaks. But I'm looking at them with a blank expression and going, well, and so... What next? <laughs> and do you do you just record these on audio recorder? And you mentioned you videoed some as well. But are you taking notes throughout, or are you just leaving it to review later? No, it's uh, most of the time it's done on a. Uh, I've got a film crew there, or I've got audio cassettes. No, that makes sense. I did get one question from a listener here, I'm trying to figure out how to word it. It doesn't make sense. He said it's difficult to find. I think this is from an audience perspective. It's difficult to find out what the police procedure is how do you do it i mean decipher that how you will chris (laughs) i'm not quite sure what it means i'll be honest how do i do what the police do maybe i think perhaps it means how it's a difficult one because you've only got so many characters on instagram so apologies whoever asked that question because i'm not doing you justice there but I think maybe it's asking how can you, because my question at the start was how you get involved with the actual getting to speak to these guys, which you've kind of covered, but is there one, let's say, for example, let's word it this way. Someone confesses to you like John Blake with Shawcross. I remember you said you were trying to push him on that. And he was, at first he was taken aback and he didn't want to talk about it, but then you eventually got it out of him. Once he's confessed to that on tape or on audio, What's the legal process after that if he's actually confessed to a new murder? Well, the point is, with the point is, let's just with Jack Blake and, and Shawcross. I mean, the thing with him was he he and there is another documentary made by somebody else about him. And if you watch that, you'll see the same thing. The minute the interviewer starts mentioning the children, the two kids, he shuts up and then he snaps and he walks out the door. When I tried to pull him on Jack Blake, he said beforehand, if you talk, if you mention the children, I'm off. But I got all the information I wanted out of him, but then I had to touch on Jack Blake. But I knew his girlfriend called Clara Neal, and he was married as well, but this big woman called Clara Neal. And I got everything I wanted out of him, and then I knew that it was running out of time. So I then, I then said to him, Arthur, what about Jack Blake? And he started to fume. I mean, he's a big man. I'm only inches away from him, sweating like a pig. He, he looked at me, so I told you not to mention that. I said, well, the thing is, Arthur, your fiance Clara's outside. And, you know, you've asked me to be the best man at your wedding. 
where she said, you've got to tell me the truth. And his face screwed up. You could see his fury in him trying to control the fury. And then I, I reached across and touched his knee. I said, come on, Arthur. Claire is going to be really pissed off with you if you don't come across. And then he told me. Mm. Now, legally, that's it. With him, it was done and dusted. There was no problem. With Michael Ross, there was an element of entrapment involved. And my producer, Fraser Ashford, went ape. He said, Chris, we'll get sued. We can't, you know, even though the police have asked you off the record to do this, we can't use it. And I told Fraser to fuck off because I said to him, this is not about television. This is about clearing up a murder for the parents, for God's sake. Yeah. He was a little bit lefty about it. But we got we got over it. But then... As a result of that, the Connecticut State Police went to interview them because they watched the tape. They watched him confess on the tape to the murder of this young girl, one of these girls. And so Michael wrote to me and he said, shall I go? Shall I speak to the police? I said, yeah, by all means. And he went and spoke to the police. And then the police took a transcript of it. I mean, he couldn't, he wasn't going to be charged with it because he was on death row anyway. And then the police sent me all the stuff that he'd sent, said to them with my name mentioned. And I gave all of that as an educational tool to DCI Martin Brunning, who was head of the um, Joanne Dennehy case mm. as an interview idea. So it, it got, you know, and the other thing is if any of your viewers went to the United States and extracted a confession out of somebody and then got back home and wrote about it, you can't get sued because you're out of their jurisdiction. Mm. You know, it's not like they yeah. can walk around and send a sheriff around to arrest you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> That'd make a good story if they did do that, I think. That'd be quite interesting. Right, what I'll do is, um, before we close off, Chris, I know I've kept you for about an hour now, and I really appreciate your time. What well, I used to have an old show, and I used to ask every guest three questions just at the end. I'm trying to think what they are. I know the first one is, well, first, let's start with an easy one. Do you have a motto or uh, something you live by, like a phrase, or you mentioned that you're a little, little bit of a Christian and stuff? And 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 most of my books, I say, uh, uh, "Sweet dreams, no nightmares, please." Mm -hmm. That's good. That's a good quote. I like that. Is there anything you know now that you wish you'd known when you started this journey? How wonderful it's been to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> answer done. No, no, seriously, no. You know. It's a learning process, isn't it? Life is a learning process. You know, we just go through life and we learn. We make mistakes. We pick ourselves up. It's like going on a journey. Sometimes you take the wrong journey. You might drive 50 miles the wrong way and think, oh, shit, I've gone the wrong way. You go back and you start again. Yeah. So in that same vein, would you have done anything different or would you have kept it exactly the same? Exactly the same. Yeah. I've made mistakes. We all make mistakes. Slipped up sometimes. Moved on ex-marine you know i mean when we were training down at limston there was a big big high wall i did all my commando courses and i got down the bottom field soaking wet 50 40 pounds worth of kit and a rifle and I we had to run and we were totally exhausted now to get over this six seven foot wall and do you know i couldn't do it i couldn't and the sergeant one day come that night come and if i didn't do it i wouldn't get the greenberry as part of the final course and uh, that night, the evening sergeant come out the mess. He said, right, he said, get down that bottom field. He said, I'm going to get you over that wall. He said, you're going to be angry with that wall. You're going to climb that wall. 
He said, and you're going to hate that wall. And after a couple of tents, I got so angry with the wall, I shut over the top of it and did it two more times. And I remember that through life. And, and, and your viewers, we all come up against brick walls in life. We come through these problems. The thing is not to give up. Keep going, keep going, fight, fight, fight. Take a deep breather, go back and have another shot at it. Get over it, get away with it, forget it, and then get on with your life. Yeah, that's good. I agree. I'm a big believer of uh, learning through failure. I think that's the only way we truly learn, personally. I'm going to go and buy two bottles of Russian vodka now to calm down after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> they make the best vodka. But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. So your, your latest novel, which is out already, Talking with Serial Killers. Hey, it's not a novel. Novel. True crime book. Sorry. True, <laughs> True crime book. <laughs> Talking with Serial Killers, Sleeping with Psychopaths, Chilling Study of the Innocent Lovers of Savage Murderers. You've got your masterclass, which you've mentioned. Upcoming appearances, CrimeCon, is that happening this year? Yeah, we did one this year. It was fantastic in St. Paul's. Um, all the stuff can be found on the internet for 2022. Fantastic. Meet all the famous cops and frenzy people. The, you, you know, your viewers are interested. They go and look up CrimeCon for 2022. Fantastic people. Yeah. And everything we can find out about Chris is your website, ChristopherBerryD.com. Buy some merchandise as well, please. Always helps. But yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say before we close off this? No, I'll tell you what, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, you know, uh, we did it a bit because we had a bit of a trouble um, figuring out when to do it, but we did it today, straight off the bat. Very enjoyable for me. God bless you and God bless all your viewers. Stay safe. Thank you. We'll leave it there. And as I always say, until next time, cheerio. 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 <laughs>